Hello, and welcome to this latest episode of Freshfield's Essential Antitrust Asia podcast series. In this series, we speak with local experts across the region to bring you the latest competition law trends and updates. My name is Laurent Bougard, and I'm a senior associate in the firm's antitrust competition and trade practice based in Hong Kong. In this seventh episode, we will bring you up to speed on the latest merger control and antitrust enforcement trends in Japan. To discuss these topics, I'm joined by my colleague from our Tokyo office, Kaori Yamada, a partner and head of our Asia Antitrust Competition and Trade Group. Kaori has extensive experience in all areas of competition law, as well as investigations relating to anti-bribery and corruption issues. Prior to joining Freshfields, Kaori worked at the Japanese Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Treaties, Bureau, and Economic Affairs Bureau, and she is currently a member of the Digital Markets Competition Working Group of the Prime Minister's Office. Welcome, Kaori. Hello, everyone. Thank you, Lauren. Well, thanks very much for taking the time. Let's start with transactions and, and merger control, perhaps. I mean, the Japanese yen has been at its weakest in years, fueling speculation of increasing Japanese inbound M&A, and perhaps especially now as travel restrictions ease. So what should transacting parties know about Japanese merger control? Thank you. So the regulator who looks after uh, the merger control system is called the Japan Fair Trade uh, Commission. We call it JFDC. And it's a very old authority, actually, which started in 1947, adopting American system. Uh, but interestingly, recently, uh, it is transforming closer to EU style gradually. And, and I understand that one particular feature of the Japanese notification system is that it's quite usual to have quite long pre-notification periods for deals where businesses do overlap, but then actually a rather quick clearance after a quick formal review. Is that still the case? Yeah, that's unfortunately, and even worse at the moment, under the new director of merger section, he's very sort of peculiar with the details especially on the um, market definitions. So as a result, authorities are becoming more uh, sort of uh, inquisitive about details. And then sometimes uh, JFTC sticks out to the end after all the other authorities cleared. Understood. And it's worth noting that Japan has a mandatory and, and suspensory notification system but that it has also recently introduced a voluntary regime of notifications. Could, could you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so the voluntary regime is basically um, originally uh, to follow the um, footstep of other authorities like Germany to capture so-called uh, killer acquisitions. And pretty much at the moment, based on the rule, if the transaction consideration is over approximately 400 million US dollars, and then the target has some presence, either turnover or presence in Japan, then theoretically, that transaction is automatically captured. So it's a very difficult situation. And uh, we, we normally speak to JFDC and then what they think. And then normally in the digital transaction, JFDC say, yes, please file. But other transactions uh, tend not to. That's what's happening at the moment. So in other words, the thresholds are, are quite broad, and that leads to a de facto voluntary notification system. Yeah, that's right. So we are actually doing a lot of voluntary filings at the moment, primarily uh, sort of technology 
area transactions. Could you walk us through such a standard merger review if there is even such a thing? How much information do parties actually need to provide up front? Is it more a US style system, HSR form with fairly limited upfront information, or are we more in EU territory with a fairly substantial notification form? Yeah, no, exactly. That's the unique point. So as far as I know, um, out of the current uh, active, you know, existing uh, merger filing regime is about 160 or something. Uh, Japan and Indonesia and America are the only um, jurisdictions which use this sort of um, data-heavy uh, sort of table style rather than narrative one. So Japanese one is at least a mandatory form. is very similar to American HSR filing. And uh, very data-heavy, more factual rather than narrative descriptions. But at the moment, uh, the standard practice is that for cases with business overlaps, we tend to submit EU Form CEO style briefing note additionally. And um, we actually did um, a very first case where GFDC requested internal documents That was several years ago. And since then, it seems submission of internal documents are becoming more and more popular, almost uh, standard practice for overlap uh, cases. Although I must say, we've never seen a sort of search request for you know director's email account or that sort of a, a material pursuit as yet. And um, sometimes the... RFI request is quite a lot. <laughs> That's unfortunately the reality. And in the past, but that was quite a while ago, but there was a sort of a epic case where GFTC asked in total 1,800 questions over two years of pre-notification. So generally speaking, even now, we feel that GFTC is on the heavier side in terms of uh, RFI questions. But the good thing is that we often push back and they accept. And good to know that there is some scope to, to discuss, at least with the authorities, questions that they are asking. This is also a n nice segue into what a uh, standard clearance timing looks like in Obviously, the, the more complex the case, the longer the, the duration. And, and you just mentioned a pre-notification lasting two years. If we are dealing with a, a fairly standard transaction, what kind of you know, timing are we looking at in order to obtain JFTC clearance? The standard case you mentioned, I mean, there's no overlap, then it's really a simple. So pre-notification would be really just a, a few days But sometimes, as I said, uh, GFTC is really obsessed with the market definition. So even simple case, a market share together, uh, 10% or 20%, if there's any overlap, then sometimes the pre-notification uh, still uh, takes one to two months, but still relatively shorter compared to problematic cases. And then once the substantive review is done, actually after that, it's very quick. So we file formal uh, submission. And then although the statutory waiting period is 30 days, on condition that we actually apply for shorter track, then the shortest I have seen is really 10 days or two weeks in clearance after formal submission. Now that's helpful to know. And... I guess also another hopeful note is that while some processes may last a long time, the JFTC has, doesn't really have a track record of prohibiting 
transactions and if remedies are imposed, that these are typically not as far-reaching as those imposed or being asked by other regulators in Europe and America. Is that right or am I oversimplifying a little bit? That's um, generally correct in the in the past, and then still, uh, JFDC hasn't prohibited uh, any case, at least in recent years. But the trend is, in the past, JFDC is very sort of um, nice, sort of a self-restrictive authority. So they used to think that oh, it's a shame to stick out, you know, take longer than other authority. And uh, they don't want to be a nuisance uh, in the transaction timeline in the case of a big global case. However, what we are seeing at the moment is that um, what they need to review is just what they need to review. So a couple of cases, the most recent two years, uh, for example, we are seeing um, JFDC is the very last authority that clears And then sometimes like three or four months after a European Commission or American authority clears, that uh, sort of um, legacy of JFDC, always quick, always reasonable in terms of timeline, that's effectively gone, uh, I must say. That's rather unfortunate. Just taking a step back, I mean, we've spoken about merger control. Just more generally in terms of enforcement priorities, you already mentioned the digital sector, and, and we know that that's a sector that's very much in the crosshairs of, of authorities worldwide. I assume that's the case for the JFTC as well. Do they have stated enforcement priorities just across the board, both in, for merger control and conduct? So not limited to merger control. Um, a couple of years ago, I think, when the management changed, there was an announcement that they will focus on digital and global matters and also sort of non-cartel matters, so dominance or unilateral conduct. And then definitely um, looking at the even merger cases, uh, you know, the um, heavily reviewed merger cases, digital industry is certainly attracting a lot of attention. And this applies to behavioral uh, enforcement as well. I wanted to flag that um, in addition to digital industry, there has been increasing increasing appetite among government agencies, not only GFTC, but also uh, prosecutor's office, to challenge cartel infringement by criminal procedure. And recently, there was a criminal investigation into pharmaceutical distribution segment. And it's something we used to think that, well, healthcare is under health ministry jurisdiction. So therefore, JFTC would hesitate to cut into someone else's jurisdiction. So in in reality, JFTC used to shy away from this other industrial segment but the taboo is kind of gone now. So um, just going forward, we expect that healthcare will become increasingly a uh, hotspot of GFTC enforcement. You mentioned criminal enforcement there, and, and I guess one aspect of prosecutorial culture in Japan is that they prosecute only if they're nearly certain or, or completely certain that they will get an actual conviction rates in the criminal bar, at least as I understand it, are extremely high in Japan. So is the JFTC only going to take on a criminal case or, or is a prosecutor only going to take on a criminal enforcement case if they are sure that they will get a conviction? 
Yeah, that, that's pretty much the case. I mean, basically, JFDC has a history that since the war, so establishment of 1947, all the training of investigation was done, has been done by prosecutor's office originally. So the culture is exactly the same. So not only criminal cases, but also the formal investigations, uh, even JFDC, is really conscious of um, what we call a 99% success rate beauty or <laughs> culture. So it's, it's really rare that uh, JFTC starts formal investigation and then actually a board in the middle because they couldn't establish. But, but just, uh, you know, one exception is that they started and then finally concluded as an infringement. Uh, it's a Qualcomm case, dominance case, but that was overturned in the court, in appeals, and that was such embarrassment, probably the first, one of the first cases of embarrassment for JFTC. So that actually, I'll mention later, but pushed JFTC towards more soft, voluntary procedure, unfortunately. And I think we should probably expand on that because it's extremely interesting. The informal nature of some investigations could you expand on what this entails in terms of companies' obligations to, to cooperate and, and their rights of defense? Yeah, so that's actually great because nothing is written. So effectively, company can say, no, no, that's uh, voluntary. So we're not going to respond to you. So that's a possibility. But in reality, all the companies, especially technology companies, there are lots of government consultation, a potential new law, and, and even Ministry of uh, Economy, new different agency is uh, challenging. So with that background, practical choice is not there to fight against it. So what's happening at the moment is that they are dragged into this voluntary process and no protection of due process. In Japan, there's a you know, due process protection. That's an international trend. So there's a, a hearing process, an objection process, in the formal process. And of course, appeals is one of them as well. But um, in a voluntary process, this protection's all gone. That's very interesting. And well, at least I imagine that following an informal process, the JFTC cannot impose any types of penalty, but I imagine that they can give some publicity to whatever investigation that they are conducting and any behavioral concessions that they may extract. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the problem is that if they lightly investigate in a, on a voluntary basis and then that's it, then that's fine. But in reality, all those voluntary soft cases end with a remedy. So the companies required to offer very serious, extensive commercial remedies that could have, um, you know, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars of uh, impact on a company's business. To do that um, in a normal legal enforcement action, a proper procedure, you know, procedural uh, protection should be in place. And then, because JFTC is sort of a um, in a frustrated situation at the moment, the cartel numbers coming down a little bit, leniency applications are, you know, are decreasing in number, but they're still an organization. <laughs> they need to do something uh, to justify their existing. So I, I can totally understand that, you know, as a former government official, it's a sort of rational thinking. But even so, 
JFTC do this, this soft investigation, and announce on their website as if they finished a formal procedure, including the remedy actions which the respondent company agreed to. This is something I think the market and business community need to uh, sort out. And actually, at the moment, foreign companies are the catalyst potentially to improve the situation um, that we are helping in some cases. Yeah, that's definitely something to watch out for. And we'll definitely keep an eye on those developments. Our listeners may be interested in knowing about some fairly recent changes to the Japanese Anti-Monopoly Act, which, uh, amongst other things, for the first time acknowledged that legal privilege is a defense against unwanted document disclosures. Could you please go through the different headlines of, of this recent amendment? Because legal privilege is an essential part of any company's defense against an investigation. Yeah, sure. To be honest, not much to talk about on this amendment, but that was um, on Christmas Day and 2019, uh, it came into force. And the biggest change was the penalty calculation duration used to be three years, but now lifted to 10 years. And then, as you said, the privilege. But unfortunately, privilege protection is very, very limited. I actually traveled with JFDC to Brussels to hear European Commission and also, you know, Freshers Brussels office as well, how European uh, privilege works. But at the moment, what JFDC introduced is really only leniency applicants and very, very limited scope. I think we're coming towards the end of our podcast. Just to, to finish, Kara, could you please, you know, share a couple of practical tips for our listeners that what should they be thinking about when doing business in Japan and, and especially uh, in terms of, of antitrust compliance? Yeah, sure. Um, well, if, uh, you know, um, generally uh, what to look out for in Japan, there are lots of things, interesting things like, uh, you know, don't eat fugu uh, unless uh, authorized place, <laughs> but uh, specifically for antitrust perspective, I guess abuse of superior bargaining position is probably the most unique feature uh, in Japanese system. So it is a system, in short, that it's a regulation to hunt down larger players bullying weaker players. And recently, unfortunately, the scope of bullying, as JFDC captures, is expanding materially. And very often, JFDC's interpretation is very gray. So um, in the big tech and uh, also big Foreign players, particularly having large global market share, bullying um, Japanese distributors, or so. So that's uh, something um, foreign players in Japan need to watch out for. Thank you, thank you, Kerry. Well, it, it's been a great overview of the regulatory developments in Japan and extremely helpful insights about the regulators and their priorities and and also their way of working. So thank you very much, Kerry, again for being our guest today. Thank you very much. And thank you to our listeners for checking out this episode of our Essential Antitrust Asia series. If you'd like more information about the topics in this podcast, please email us using the links in the show description. We hope you'll join us again next time.